I, I have to tell you, I've had the privilege of preaching all over the world. And you all have such a sweet fellowship and such an intentional and thoughtful approach to doing church. And, and I want you to know, while every church has its own DNA, some are more spirited. I've been in churches where uh, I, I, I thought I was asleep compared to everybody else around me. Man, they were, they were getting into it. I've been in other churches that were more laid back. Every church has its own DNA. But I'm telling you, there are people across the world that would give anything to experience what you were just able to experience. So I pray every Sunday that you are able to come and be a part of this, that there's a joy that swells in your heart that makes your passion for Lord Jesus Christ grow more and more every week. Well, I'm away from my family. Let me tell you a little bit about me before I pray. I have been in ministry for a little over 20 years. I've been at Liberty University for a little while now. Love being able to invest and see what Christ is doing in his church across the globe, across denominations. This morning, I was actually interacting with a a pastor at a Seventh-day Adventist church, from Lutherans to Baptists to extreme Pentecostals to the fundamental King James only and everything in between and being able to have conversations about, I don't really care that much about your tradition. What does the word of God say? And be able to help have that conversation with people around the world, whether they're chaplains deployed in Afghanistan, which we have right now, or over in South Korea, or pastors of mega churches, or pastors who are meeting with five people in their home right now. Um, it's cool to see what Jesus is doing in his church. And you're a part of that. And so it's pretty cool. But I've been doing that for a while. I am married, been married for 23 years. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Actually, 23 years is February. I keep saying 23, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I have four children, Madeline, Megan, Mary Grace, and Cameron. I have a 17, 14, 13, and 11-year-old, three girls and a boy. So our life is lively all the time, and they all play competitive soccer. So we travel like crazy, and we love the life God has given us, although at times uh, it's a little maddening. So let me pray for us as we get ready. We're going to be in Psalm 135. If you want to kind of make your way there, we'll, in about five or so minutes, uh, five to seven minutes, we'll be actually diving into that text. But let me pray for us. Father, this morning, we do not pray out of obligation or tradition. We pray because we believe that through the sufficiency and sacrifice of Jesus, we now have access before your throne to find grace in our time of need. And today is such a time where we have needs. We, we need to know you more. We need you to arrest our affections. We need you to capture our hearts and change our lives because given our own tendencies, we would seek anything but you. So Lord, I pray that today you do your supernatural work in our hearts and lives. And not that we just have an experience in this moment, but Father, that we are, have the spirit of Christ within us stirred so that we might be more submissive to him. He might have more control and influence in our life that we might live more faithfully in this world for your glory and be more vocal about the truths of Christ to those we come in contact with. So God, today I pray that you help us and prepare for us a bedrock foundation that will carry us through the storms of life. In Jesus' name, amen. So my wife and I were married back in 1996, and we soon found out that compatibility when dating is very different than compatibility in marriage, right? I mean, you're dating, you go on a date, you go do something fun, and then you go your separate ways. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. And when you're married, you're going home and you're waking up and Every night, you're like, well, what are we going to do? I, I, I don't know. And you eat dinner, and you just kind of stare at each other. So, so you need some kind of compatibility to make life lively. Well, my wife, my wife loved to read 
and, and I was borderline illiterate at the time, and so that wasn't really fun. Uh, I love to play sports. My wife was like, uh-uh, I'm not having none of that. So we found out the things that we love to do the most, the other person didn't even enjoy a little bit. So what are we going to do? So we began to search through our repertoire of activities, and we found out that we both enjoyed movies a lot. So movies became our thing. Well, me being a barbaric male, my wife wanted to help introduce me to culture, so she decided I needed to watch some musicals. So the first musical she made me watch was Sound of Music, and that was okay. But then she introduced me to The King and I, and that did not go well. If you've ever seen that movie, um, I want to say I'm sorry on behalf of the movie industry. I hated it. It was awful. So, but our, our movie watching experience kind of survived that. So we went back to watching my favorite action movies, and, and that was just kind of became our thing until we had children. And then we continued to watch movies. They were just at a much uh, lower level for us in terms of entertainment. So I'm so surprised that this past February when we had our anniversary that my wife, because of my busy schedule, said, you know what, this year I'm going to plan our anniversary. I said, great, praise Jesus, because it was about two weeks out, and I was just done. I ain't had time to think about it. I said, if you could plan our evening, that'd be wonderful. So it's no surprise that she planned for us to go watch a movie together among the other things that we would do that evening. And she decided to roll the dice and take me to another musical called The Greatest Showman, which turned out to be a great movie. And in it, if you're familiar with it, which most of you are, and if you're not, I want to tell you, you need to go rent the movie and watch it. There's a point where Jenny Lynn, I think I'm saying her name correctly, is singing this song, Never Enough. It was funny because, Alan, one of your kids came up to me and goes, they, they love The Greatest Showman in the Birchfield house. And one of his kids came and goes, you know, Jenny Lynn is really singing that to P.T. Barnum, and he's married, and that's not appropriate. I said, you're right. But there is this moment, this movie, where you're singing this song about how all the world is never enough. And, and you kind of get the sense in the movie that she's singing it for P.T. Barnum. That, you know, I can have everything that's out there, but will not satisfy my heart if I don't have you. Well, we know theologically that statement is a very true statement, but the you that we are calling out to is God. And I can have everything in life. I can have all these experiences. I could have all of these adventures. I could have all these people or possessions, and it doesn't satisfy my life unless I have God. But here's the question we must wrestle with. What is it about God that satisfies our heart? Now, certainly in Bible teaching churches, conservative churches, churches that are, are committed to the word of God, the sovereignty of God is highlighted most certainly when we talk about that which satisfies in our relationship with God. And we talk about the sovereignty of God, what we are talking about is the fact that God answers to no authority higher than himself. There is no higher authority. When we're talking about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about the fact that God is bound only by his own will and his own morality. There is nothing that limits God other than himself. And be sure, God is limited because God limits himself so that he never participates in evil. God does not do certain things because in his sovereignty, he has set his own boundaries. Yet in mine and my wife's marriage and Christian experience, we soon realize that the sovereignty of God was not enough by itself to capture our hearts and arrest our affections. Maybe you can relate to this experience. Early on in our marriage, we decided we wanted to try to have children. 
So we're going to talk about it. And so at first it was just we were not going to try to prevent having children. And then it soon progressed into, well, yeah, let's just try a little bit. And then it soon turned into desperation. We don't know if we're going to be able to have children. Month went into month and went into month and went into year. And we just couldn't get pregnant. It was, it was the last month with a fertility doctor where they said, and we were poor broke. We had a crack house behind us. We live in a neighborhood. We got robbed once. We had one beat up old vehicle. You didn't go out at night. Um, it wasn't common to have somebody walk down the street with a gun in their waistband. It was a rough neighborhood. We had nothing. And the doctor says, well, well, you know, you can try in vitro. And we're like, we, we, we can't do that. And they said, well, you got one month left. And we just cried out to God, God, in your mercy, if, if you'd be so kind. I mean, I'm getting a little emotional. It was just such a hard time. If you've been there, you understand. And, and God, in his, in his grace, he chose to be gracious in, in the way by answering our prayers the way we'd asked. And, and sure enough, that month, we happened to get pregnant. But now we're scared to death, right? Because we know pregnancies are, are delicate, and so we're going, okay, well, what's, what's going to happen here? And so I try not to get excited the first month, second month, third month. Man, we're past that first trimester. Now we start getting a little excited. And, and lo and behold, we get to month eight. We're really excited. And my wife's blood pressure starts going crazy. Doctor's like, this isn't good. Now, you know, you just need to know. So she comes in. They finally say, we need to induce because your wife's blood pressure is getting too high. And the baby's struggling a little bit in the womb. So we, we go in for the induction. The doctor says, hey, look, everything's looking good, though. No, no reason to be concerned. And Sure enough, the delivery starts going pretty well. She's struggling a little bit, but finally, man, everything starts clicking, and it's great. Doctor goes, this is good news. You're doing well. And the baby comes into the world. The doctor grabs that baby and wraps her up. Beautiful little girl. But immediately, by the way, the doctor's acting. I knew something was wrong. And uh, I, just, I just remember them looking at my wife. They don't even hand the baby to my wife. They come over there. They put the baby in my arms, and they said, you need to follow us. And they immediately escort us out to the neonatal intensive care unit, the NICU. And, and here I'm walking in, and my baby, this baby we, we prayed for, we, we've cried out to God for, she's turning blue in my arms. And I'm like, God, what's, what are you doing? And uh, we get there, and they take her from me, and they start giving her oxygen. You know, I remember the in-laws and my, my parents are over there at the window, and they're knocking, and, I, and I'm trying to smile, and I'm waving. And in, inside, I'm like, God, what, what are you doing? And this doesn't happen to people that love you. Like, like this is the wrong script, God. This, this isn't how it's supposed to work. And, and that night, they, they end up ushering me out eventually, and I go back to my wife, and they're giving my little daughter IVs and oxygen. And, and we don't know what's wrong. We have no idea. Like, I don't know. I mean, is it? I have no idea. And so at night, we're laying in our bed, and we don't know if our daughter's going to live or die, that we've cried out to God. And I'm in this little makeshift couch, and my wife's in her bed, and we're holding hands. And we're just crying. We can't talk. We're just, we're just weeping. I'm just crying. It's in the wee hours of the morning. And I'm trying to process this theologically. I'm like, I'm a pastor at a church. I'm, God, I'm doing your work. I'm leading this church plant, and you're blessing us, and we're counseling people, and we're sacrificing everything. I was telling Alan, I'd have to get up at 3 in the morning on Sunday mornings to finish my sermon. I was working 60 hours a week. I was going to school full-time to finish my bachelor's degree, and we had nothing. I'm like, God, this does not make sense. So I'm processing this theologically, and I finally come to the conclusion that God is sovereign. And I said, yes, God, I believe you're sovereign, but if you are like Hitler, then your sovereignty is of no use to me. 
If God, if you're all powerful, if you answer to no authority higher than yourself, but you are an evil authority, then that brings no comfort to my soul. That does not arrest my affection. As a matter of fact, that terrifies me. Something was missing. Can you relate? that time when you you begged and you longed for the coach to put you in the game and you prayed and you said, God, if I just had that one chance to start them and you get in there and you blew it in front of everybody. When you prayed and prayed and God still allowed your parents to pass away from cancer or for dementia to grow in their mind. When you tried to do the right thing at work and you were still fired. When you received, received that bad medical report, when you lost that child in that miscarriage, when your child rebelled and got hooked on drugs or got addicted to alcohol, when you were, you were faithful to give to the church, man, you're writing that tie check to Haven Ridge and, and now the, the banks are still repossessing your home or sending your debts to collections. When you were injured in that traffic accident or when that loved one took advantage of your innocence. Life is hard and full of uncertainty and brokenness, but the question is, how can I praise God in the midst of the brokenness of this world? We know God is inherently worthy of praise. We get that up there. But how do we have our affections engage God in praise when we're surrounded by turmoil? The Bible reveals, I believe, several truths to help answer this question but there's one truth that I believe that is central to them all. So let's look at the central truth to see how we might offer genuine praise in the midst of broken circumstances. And I believe we can see that in one place is in Psalm 135. So if you have your Bibles, let's, let's look at that text together. Look how it starts off here. The psalmist writes through the inspiration of the spirit of the living God, praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh's name, right? Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, you servants of the Lord, you who minister in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord. Why? For the Lord is good. Sing praise to his name, for that is pleasant. The psalmist grounds their argument for you to praise God because God is good. Now, we know that God is good intellectually. But I want you to know, we don't just praise God because he does good things. We could have in downtown city of the metropolitan, met, metropolitan Greer, we could have a cocaine dealer on the sidewalk and see a stroller with an infant rolling towards a busy intersection. And that cocaine dealer could step out and stop that stroller and do a good deed. But that cocaine dealer is not inherently good in and of himself as a person. You see, anybody can do good things on occasion. We don't praise God just because he does good things, although he does. We praise God because he is inherently good in his character, in his being, in who he is. He is a good God who does good things out of his goodness. He is by nature good, and that goodness is demonstrated in his activity. And the greatest evidence in our text of the goodness of God, when the psalmist is writing that God is good, the psalmist is going to explain why he thinks that. He says in verse four, not only praise the Lord for he is good in verse three, but then in verse four, four, again, he's grounding, he's establishing, he's proving his argument about the goodness of God. For the Lord has chosen Jacob 
to be his own. Israel to be his treasured possession. God is good. And the psalmist is saying, if you, if those of you who are reading the psalm want to know that God is good, if you want proof that God is good, don't look at your present circumstances. Look at the salvation he provided when he chose us in Jacob, when he chose Israel to be his own possession. We know he is good because he is a redeeming God. Now, this is an Old Testament text talking about the choosing of Israel in Jacob. Does it apply to us today? Absolutely. And I, say, I think we see the same concept of the goodness of God and proof that God is good in salvation in a variety of texts. But one text we could see is in Matthew chapter 7. And when you think over the New Testament, it's kind of like a, a parallel passage here, I believe. Let me just read for you Matthew 7, 7 through 11. It's a passage many of you are familiar with. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? Listen to this. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? <coughs> So, so God, out of his goodness, gives good things to those who ask of him. But what is it that God gives specifically? Matthew's kind of vague at this point, but Luke, in a parallel passage, is going to add a qualifier in here to help us understand the evidence of God's goodness. If you go over to Luke chapter 11, verse 13, it's the exact same wording, it's the exact same teaching, but Luke adds one phrase in it for clarification. Listen to this, verse 13. Luke 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? Notice God's goodness is part of his very character. It's evidenced in his interaction with his children. And the greatest evidence of his goodness in our life is in his redemptive work as he gives us his spirit. We know that God is good. How do we know? We can look at the cross and the resurrection and we can look at the Spirit's involvement in our life. And that is the evidence we get from the scriptures that God is good. We must be careful. Now, don't miss this. We must be careful not to allow circumstances to cast a shadow bigger than the cross. We have to be careful here. And notice that then in our text in Psalm 135, God's sovereignty is framed in the wake of God's goodness. See, it's God's goodness that's proclaimed and it's out of that goodness that we understand his sovereignty in the text. Look at verse five. He begins to talk about God's greatness, talking about his sovereignty. I know that the Lord is great. I know that our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. He makes the clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with rain. He brings out the wind from the storehouses. He struck down the firstborn of Egypt, the firstborn of men and animals. He sent his signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, against Pharaoh and all of his servants. He struck down many nations and he killed mighty kings. Sion, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kings of Canaan, 
and he gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all generations. Now understand what's going on in the context of this psalm before we get to the next verse. So I'm gonna take up time out here for just a second. They are struggling with their present circumstances. And he says, you need to praise God even though you're going through the junk right now. Look back at his redemptive work. Look how he has saved you. Look, he is a redeeming God. You know he is good. How do you know he's good? Because he chose you in Jacob. But now he's gonna talk about their present circumstances. Notice he shifts to a future tense. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold because they're struggling with how can, how can evil be winning? How, how can evil be winning, God? We don't understand this. God says, hey, I'll vindicate my people. I know the idols of the nations are silver and gold. They're made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So he comes back to the command to praise. O house of Israel, praise the Lord. O house of Aaron, praise the Lord. O house of Levi, praise the Lord. You who fear him, praise the Lord. Praise be to the Lord from Zion, to him who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Intellectually, we can grasp the idea in here. We can nod our head. We can say amen. We can grasp intellectually the idea that God is good, that his goodness is evidence in salvation, and our circumstances should not overshadow our understanding and exception of his goodness. His goodness should arrest our affections and we should understand that the cross and the resurrection and the Spirit's involvement in our life are evidence of the goodness of God. And yet when we get in the midst of bad experiences, we get frustrated with God. Why? Because I think even though we know that up here, our perspective in our hearts is still off. Let me share a couple of things I think that are applicable to this text. One, I believe in the midst of those dark circumstances, we prosecute the wrong defendant. I think we do. I think we struggle with the concept of God's goodness because we know that God is sovereign. But we also know that the world is broken and it doesn't compute how those two things can go together. How can God be sovereign and evil still exist? And so when I go through bad circumstances, how do I process that? Well, the first thing I think we need to understand is the fact that evil exists is evidence of God's goodness, not an indictment against it. Why? Because the reality of evil and the reality of the brokenness in this world shows that God is trustworthy and has allowed to happen exactly what he said would happen if we did what we did in Adam. In the Garden of Eden, God warned Adam and he said, if you do this, you will break the system. Don't do it. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. Now, maybe your kids, let me give a personal example. Maybe your kids are way better than mine. My kids are crazy. And my son is a little wild sometimes. So what would it say about me as a father is I had a hot stove where I just got finished, let's say, boiling some water for some good old southern tea like we make in our house, even though we're in Virginia now. We got finished boiling some water, and he walks up as a little kid, 
And he goes like he's going to touch the stove. And I said, son, don't touch the stove. If you touch the stove, it's going to burn you. So make sure, okay, dad. Turns around, he's going to walk off. I turn around. What does he do? He turns back around and he reaches up and touches the stove and he burns his finger and starts screaming. Now, the reality of him burning his finger is not an indictment against my goodness. It's a reality and a truth that that stove was hot, that I told him it was, and he experienced exactly what his good dad told him he would experience when he touched the stupid stove. You see, we indict God for our brokenness when we should be blaming sin. The reason we experience difficult circumstances is because of the reality of sin. Brokenness in this world, hurricanes, tornadoes, flooding, abortions, miscarriages, rape, all the different things that we experience in this world are the reality that sin exists. And the reason sin exists is because we rebel. And we're experiencing the very consequences God said we would because he is good and he is trustworthy. And so when we go through difficult times, it is not an indictment against the goodness of God. It is a reminder of the horrific consequences of sin. And those broken circumstances should cause us to run to God. And instead of crying out, why God? We should cry out, when God? When are you gonna come back and fix this mess? Because you promised you would. See, God is good. And yet some of you, I could imagine you objecting and saying, but Adam, what about passages like Romans 8, 28, right? All things work together for good. Truth, a truth. How do I understand that, Adam? Just because we can't see God's goodness unraveling in the midst of our circumstances doesn't mean God's goodness isn't there. I was working on a hot water tank. I am not very mechanical. So Austin and Alan are way out of my league on that. And so our hot water tank had gone out, and, but the pressure pop valve had gone out on the hot water tank is what the problem was. And so it wasn't working right. Well, a friend had shown me how to change one before. It was like the third time on this hot water tank it had gone out over a course of about five years. So I'm changing it out. And one of my kids walks in, and they're young at this point in time. And so they walk in. They say, Dad, what are you doing? I said, I'm changing the pressure valve here on the hot water tank. They go, really? Why? So I begin to explain to them, thinking, oh, this little mechanical mind is going to love this. I'm going to raise me a little Einstein. And so I begin to explain it, and they're looking at me like, and then finally they go, that makes no sense. And I said, well, well, you'll understand in just a minute. If you just watch me, it's going to make sense in a minute. So I start working on it. I turn around, 30 seconds later, they're gone. I think sometimes we're like my kids. We don't understand how it's going to work, and we're too impatient to wait and see how it works out. We don't want to wait for the end of the story. We want to know the ending now. And so what happens is when we experience difficult circumstances, we say, how can this be good? And we assume there is no good in it because we can't see it as if we have a sovereign perspective over life. And yet God has told us, in the midst of those circumstances, when goodness seems to dissipate like smoke on a windy day, you know I'm good. How do you know? Don't worry about that moment. Look back at the cross and the resurrection. Know the spirit of God that I've placed within you. Are those not sufficient to prove to you that I am good even in the midst of this moment? But notice in verse 14 of our text, when I told you it shifted to future tense, for the Lord will vindicate his people. I think our perspective 
off as, is off as well in the fact that we forget that the future kingdom is the real kingdom. We somehow mistake and think that this life is the kingdom, that this is the goal. It's the American dream. That's, that's Jesus' goal for you. That is not Jesus. That's not touchdown zone. That's not, that's not where we're headed. That's not the basket. That's not the goal. Where he wants to take us is to a kingdom. And that kingdom is being established in part now, but that kingdom will be established in its fullness in a new heavens and a new earth at the consummation of the end of the age. But we forget that. For the Lord will vindicate his people. Even when I don't see the goodness of God in my present circumstances, I can look back to the cross and the resurrection. I can look presently to the investment of his spirit in my life, but I can also look future and forward to the coming kingdom and know that, you know what, even though I don't know how this is gonna work out good, I know at the end of the age, he's gonna make it right. My kids are always better when dad's around. So I hope you've been praying for my family this weekend because I've been gone for three days and my wife is ready for dad to get home. So matter of fact, I was telling, I was telling Alan that I was planning on having lunch with him, but after talking to my wife, I was like, I better leave right after the service. <laughs> Mom is done. And there are times my kids will be doing something and mom will warn and warn and warn. And then finally she's done and she says what? Wait till your dad gets home. Sometimes my wife and I go out together and when our kids got old enough to be home alone, that was great and horrible all at the same time. Three girls and a boy, especially during certain seasons of life, do not always mix well together. So my oldest, though, she's a rule follower. She is like, this is the rule. If I told her, I said, sit in that chair for an hour, she would sit in that chair for an hour. No question. I mean, she just, she's a rule follower. Um, I got two others that are rule breakers. Like you say, sit in that chair for an hour. They go, uh-uh, you gonna make me? <laughs> and so we have to duct tape them. So, so, th so these are the contrasts. So my oldest daughter, though, she would always get put in charge usually, not always, but usually. And she got to where she would carry on her iPod and when something was going bad, she'd start recording. She'd kind of record what's going on and she would tell them, if you don't listen to me, I'm gonna show dad the evidence when he gets home. And I'd walk in, she'd go, dad, 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 look, here's what happened while you were gone. You gonna fix this? You gonna fix it? And guess what? Dad would fix it. And my friends, when circumstances are bad, we have to remember, Dad's coming home. And when he gets home, he's going to make it right. He, he's going to undo the curse. He's going to cast Satan with all of his hordes of demons into the lake of fire. He's going to make all wrongs right. He is going to undo the injustice of this world. And you, matter of fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 through 17, I believe it says you will be vindicated before wrongdoers. In the judgment seat of Christ, you will be vindicated for that which is right and that which is wrong. You will receive the crown of life and you will be rewarded. We have a king coming who's going to fix the problem. It's going back to that scene in that hospital bed that night. A little over 17 and a half years ago. I'm holding my wife's hand and I am weeping and she is weeping. And I'm processing and I had that thought. God, I believe you're sovereign, but, it, but God, if you're like Hitler, your sovereignty is of no comfort to me. And so now I began to search and go, God, there's got to be something more to bring comfort to my heart. 
And I started racking my brain for all the passages I've studied for all these years. And I came to the conclusion, I said, but God, I also believe that you are good. And that night, I call out with a cracked voice and a tear-stained face and I ask my wife if we could talk. And she responded back with a cracked voice and a tear-stained face and she said, sure. And I began to pastor my wife. I began to share with her what God was teaching me, that, that he is sovereign, but he's also good. And I remember telling my wife, I said, I don't know how he could use this in a good way if he allows our daughter to die. But he's still good. And while I don't understand it, he doesn't answer to me, I answer to him. And so, are we on the same page here? Are we willing to commit our daughter to the Lord while she's down in that unit? If she dies, glory to God. And she lives, glory to God, because he is good. And by faith, we said, we don't feel it, we don't want it, we don't even like it, but we believe it. And we grabbed hands, and I led her in a prayer, and we prayed, and we offered our daughter to the Lord. And it wasn't because we knew the fate of our daughter. It was because we knew the character of our God. Now, I'm glad to say that not only did my daughter survive, but she is thriving in life. She's a phenomenal soccer player, no effects from everything that she went through. And I can tell you how God actually used that moment to save her life because she actually had a virus that we didn't know about that wouldn't have gotten caught had she not choked and started to asphyxiate after the birth. So what I thought was an evil moment, God actually redeemed tenfold beyond what we could have imagined. But in that moment, we did not allow our circumstances to cast a shadow bigger than the cross. We all know that old saying, question is, have we surrendered and trusted in it? The, the one we use a lot of times, especially around Easter time and stuff like that, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. So here's a statement I want to encourage you with as we get ready to close here in just a minute. And here's the statement. When in doubt, refuse to pout because God is good. When in doubt, Refuse to pout because God is good. If we believe this and think of our perspective in the face of death, disease, disability, disappointment, instead of asking why God, we would cry out, when God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Maybe you're here today and you've been playing church a long time. Maybe you know all the right answers but you've never experienced the goodness of God by placing your faith in the cross and the resurrection and experienced the indwelling presence of his spirit in your life, then you do not have comfort in the midst of those circumstances. May today be the day that you surrender your will and you say, Jesus, I'm gonna quit trusting in my religiosity. I'm gonna quit trusting in my morality, in my good works, in my effort. I'm gonna quit going through the motions to appease my spouse or just to try to look good in front of my neighbor. And I'm gonna surrender my will to you and I trust that my soul standing before a holy God, a good God, is the work of Christ on my behalf. And I believe that and I place my faith in him because I am sinful and I need you. Maybe today would be the day that you do that. My assumption is most of you have heard the gospel so many times and 
If you're not a born-again believer, you're blind to it by this point. But I would trust that those of you who are believers, that maybe this small word from Psalm 135 would settle down in your soul so that if bad times are hitting now or when they hit in the future, that you, when that doubt tries to creep into your soul, would refuse to pout because God is good. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this community of believers. Thank you that all across the world, right now, on the Lord's day, people of faith are gathering around who are experiencing all varied types of circumstances from varied races and varied tongues. And they are saying, we believe. We believe in you. God, we believe that Jesus is the son of God. We believe that you are a good father. And we submit our lives to you today. And we are the servants and you are the master. Use us as you see fit as you send us out into the mission field for your glory, your honor, and your praise. And collectively with them, we cry out, God, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In the meantime, may we live out the truth that you are good all the time. In Jesus' name, amen.